if you would, not only will you in the process find out how good God is, but I think you'll become very thankful as to what he will do with your life if you're just available. Psalm 6, and we'll continue our study through the Bible, verse by verse. The Hebrew for psalm is tehillim, which is a word that basically just means worship or songful or praise. And this really is the psalms that we are now in, the songbook of, of the Jews, poetry, because it's one of the poetic books, and so it uses a lot of, you know, the alliteralism of the of the. Uh, Hebrew poetry, but it is important because though it doesn't add to the history that we have been studying, it does bring you in a present tense relationship with God forward. You are allowed to listen to people as they prayed, as they cried out in fear, as they rejoiced in faith, as they longed for God, as they were sorry over what they had done. And all of it is, is, is prayers that though privately prayed, become public knowledge to you and I as we go through the Psalms. And so they are intended to, you know, challenge our hearts and bring us into that daily walk with the Lord. And they are all in that kind of a category, which is why for a lot of people, it's a good thing to take a Psalm every day and just read it in the morning and spend some time thinking about it because it does develop present tense relationship with God, which is what God is interested in. So uh, nearly half of them, I think 73, David wrote, uh, Asaph wrote about a dozen, the sons of Korah, the worship team in the days of David wrote a dozen more. I think Solomon got himself in there for one of the best hits. Uh, Moses as well. So many of them are not attributed to anyone in particular unless you can find something in the context to pin them on someone. You're just kind of left with a uh, anonymous prayer. But they are quoted in the Bible in the other books far more than any other of the books in the Bible, maybe because there's so many of them but also because they say so much. And this is our third week. We did uh, chapter 1 and 2, or Psalm 1 and 2, and then 3 through 5. Tonight, we're going to pick up the pace and go through chapter 10. Uh, they're short psalms. They have specific kind of uh, topics. And so hopefully the Lord will use them to minister tonight to you. Beginning in Psalm 6, and you notice at the beginning, it says it's a psalm of David to be played on an eight-stringed harp, or... The Hebrew word is sheminith, which is literally the word for an eighth of an octave. So it's a musical direction. It is a you know a, a instruction on how the, the piece should be played. It would appear from all that we read in, in the psalm itself, and hopefully you're reading ahead, that David finds himself in tremendous distress because of some sin that he has been hiding in his heart. Now, if you go back to the history of, of the nation and you look for that, you almost immediately say, this has to be the time that David fell in sin with Bathsheba. Only because there are no long drawn out in the sense of months and years of rebellion found in David's life apart from this whole incident with Bathsheba. So most commentators will take the psalm and say this is David as he battles unconfessed sin and he hides it. Even from the history we know David hid his sin with Bathsheba for over a year. So not only did the child, you know, did she become pregnant, and then she, over a series of events, ends up being David's wife to cover the whole thing. For the next year, David says nothing to anyone. He doesn't come out publicly. He becomes very physically ill from 
all we read. He seems to be tremendously depressed emotionally. He withdraws from public life, and it really allows his son um, to make a pitch for, if you will, the throne and at least the affections of the people. So this was David in a position where he was, you know, lost in his sin. The first seven verses declare that he is suffering because God has laid his hand upon him, and David knew it. We don't hear confession or repentance until the end. You just hear from some tortured kind of soul, you know, about what kind of life you have when your conscience is flaring up and you're not speaking out. If the situation or the incident is Bathsheba, David had plenty to be tormented about. You know, not only did he, you know, start off as a peeping Tom off the roof, he then tried, you know, covering his adultery with her by getting her husband drunk and sending him home to her, his wife in the hopes that he might then be the father of the child and somehow play it off. Tried it for a couple of nights, didn't work, made sure that he was put out at the front lines when he went back to his army and he was killed, and then David quickly married her. This is not a, you know, something to write home about. And he did this and then said nothing. He was in a most powerful place, but it doesn't matter how powerful you are. If you hide sin in your life, depression and physical illness can, can honestly, for believers, be a, a very real side effect because you know better, you know? And you can put on the happy face, but you can't cover the sin. So David suffers with it. He knew God was angry, and yet he didn't repent. Maybe he didn't know how, or maybe, as he will hear from Nathan, he believed if this came out, the law said he should die. He would be dead, and he wasn't ready for that. In any event, you know, he never really came up with it himself. God sent a prophet to him. If the sin is not with Bathsheba, there is nothing in the Old Testament that gives us a long period of time where David is very defiant in sin. It just becomes then, you know, a time that we don't know anything about. But in any event, here's the interim, you know, and David covers it here beginning in verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, Lord. I'm weak. Heal me. My bones are troubled, and my soul is greatly troubled. But you, Lord, how long? Don't deal with me in your anger. By the way, God never deals with you in the sense of anger out of control. You know, one of the things you have to teach parents about parenting is you can discipline your children, but you can never really do that out of anger. You know, you lose your, your capability of objectivity. You, you certainly don't come across very clear. And if your discipline is just venting, you're helping no one. Discipline's all right, but you gotta, you got to be able to, to speak clearly and, and offer alternatives. And, you know, David says to the Lord, you're angry with me, but he's not out of control. I, I remember as a kid, my mother's greatest line with us was always, wait till your father comes home. And that wasn't a pleasant time. It was a time when you'd go to sleep at like 4. I'm really tired. I'm going to bed, you know, because <laughs> dad was home like 4.30. So, you know, if you could put a night between you and the wrath of dad... Somehow that could cool things down a bit. <clears throat> In any event, David senses his spiritual alienation from God. And notice he mentions physical ailments, weakness, troubled bones. And he mentions in verse three, 3 his emotional health. My soul is greatly troubled. Whatever he had done, David knew it was wrong. David believed God was angry because of it. 
And he felt like what he was going through was the result of God's anger with his sin. And that's his understanding. A, a spiritual man out of touch with God knows when the flames have died and David cries out. Maybe he had repented already and this was written afterwards because the joy and the blessing he was used to hadn't been restored yet. He'd been forgiven, but there's that lag time, isn't there? Sometimes where it, you, you come back to just that goodness of God. You, you're forgiven quickly, but the emotions, they take time to catch up. The other thing I want to point out to you in verse 3, <clears throat> and especially if you're using a New King James, I didn't actually look at the King James, but at the end of verse 3, do you see that line? It's a pause line. It's kind of you, Lord, and then a pause, and then the words, how long? And there is a figure of speech in Hebrew. It's called an aposiopesis. <laughs> you don't have to write it down. But it literally means a silence that is sudden. And you will find the, the, the people of God or the Lord employing it um, several times in the scripture. The first time is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, where the Lord says, Look, behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest he put his hand out and eat of the tree of life and live forever. And then there's this pause. The Lord sent him out of the garden and then guarded the entry so he wouldn't find himself constantly in sin. If he should eat now, he'll be like that forever. And then the Lord pauses. And then he comes up with this idea to separate man from that which would cause him to live forever in that condition. When <clears throat> Moses intercedes for the people after Aaron, you know, blames the fire for spitting out a golden calf. Moses went back up to the Lord and he said, Lord, these people have committed a great sin. They've made themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, and then he pauses. And then he says, but if not, then blot my name out of the book. It's kind of like, God, if you'll just forgive them. And he thought, stopped to think, what if he doesn't? Then what? Okay, then I want to take the rap for them. A beautiful picture of God's love for, for us sinners. But you'll find that this uh, aposiopesis, <laughs> I'll not remember that tomorrow, um, is this place where God just puts the pause, where you're, you're, you're have to, having to consider, what is the Lord going to do next, and you're not sure. So David has been suffering for his sin. Maybe he's already repented. We don't know. But in the middle of the thought, he stops and just says, how long? How long am I going to have to feel this way? How long am I going to suffer like this? And it almost seems as if the horror of David's situation was sinking in. What if God doesn't forgive him? What if God abandons him for good? What if he has to live the rest of his life like this? What if that peace never comes back? And so he cries out in verse 4, Return, O Lord, and deliver me. And save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there's no remembrance of you, and in the grave who will give you thanks? Now the word for mercy here is the Greek word for loving kindness. So return, Lord, deliver me and save me for your loving kindness sake. It's, by the way, one of David, at least in the Psalms, favorite words. You do word counts, you know. David likes this word. I like this word. Loving kindness when it comes between me and God is always a good thing for me. Um... And even arguing that the graves are silent places, you know, the, the Old Testament saints didn't yet see the grave in light of the resurrection or with New Testament information. So, you know, I can't praise you if I'm dead, basically. Well, yes, you can, but David wasn't there yet. He didn't have that revelation. So in this minute, you know, if I die like this, what good is that going to do you? 
He adds in verse 6, I am weary with groaning. All night I make my bed swim, drenching my couch with tears. My eyes waste away because of grief, and it grows old because of all of my enemies. Worn out physically, crying in his misery, unable to sleep, can't hide the grief from his enemies, showing on his face, overwhelmed in depression and sorrow. How long? And then we read at the end of the verses, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. So let my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So, you know, for a long time, Absalom was working the crowds and saying, you know, my father never comes out, does he? He doesn't ever meet with anybody. You don't see him much in public. I think he doesn't care about you. And, and a lot of enemies developed. And David said, they see it on my face. I, I can't go in public. They go, oh, look at you. You know, I see what's going on. So here at the end, assurance that God would hear his prayer and that he would overthrow those that were wicked. And his fear stopped, and his foes stopped, and his tears. I, Spurgeon used to call tears liquid prayers. That was one of his favorite expressions. You know, your tears have a voice with God. Well, they do if they are driven by repentance, and David's cry is heard. In fact, when Nathan shows up, you remember, and, and he tells the story to David about the, you know, the rich fellow who steals the, the lamb from the poor fellow to feed his family, and, and David said, I'll kill that guy. What a, what a horrible man that is. And where is he? And, and Nathan said, that's you. He stole a man's wife. He took his life. And David just, oh, he just collapsed. He, he'd been wanting to get this out for a long time. And the first thing Nathan the prophet said was, David, the Lord has put away your sins. You're not going to die. David said, the Lord, Lord, I've sinned. And, and Nathan said, you're not going to die. God has covered your sin. Oh, David was relieved. So the prayers of a man in great depression, out of mercy, he found God's best and through repentance he was restored. It's a good thing to walk with God. It should keep you in peace, not in depression, you know. What have we got to be depressed about? We're going to heaven. So sometimes you have to talk to your soul. I said to my soul, oh, my soul. You read that a lot, you know. Good self-talking to it ain't bad. Hit yourself over the head with a brick. Yeah, I get it, you know. Sometimes it takes a little. In Psalm 7, we find, notice a meditation. The word is shigion in Hebrew. A, a, uh, just that meditation, which he sang to the Lord, David did, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite, or a fella of the tribe of uh, Saul. Now, it would appear, and we don't have a historical uh, setting for this, that a member of Saul's tribe had been slandering David to Saul the king and making life miserable for David. And the problem for David was there was nothing he could do to correct it. What do you do when people falsely accuse you? Here's my first suggestion. Learn Psalm 7. Because here's the king, or the king-to-be in, in great straits, and someone's bad-mouthing him all around. In fact, it's so bad that the king now has another reason to kill David like he needed one. And it is just getting worse and not better. And for David, slander could lead to death. It usually doesn't for you and for me. But Saul certainly had enough desire to kill David. This just bolstered his hateful intentions. But like most false accusations, you know, the difficulty with that is they can ruin your reputation. And sometimes if people say them enough, even if they're unproven, they can put you out of business. Uh, 
for you as a Christian, um, your reputation is really all you have, you know? And you only have that once, so you want to be sure that you maintain it. But what do you do if someone, you know, is bad-mouthing you and it, what they're saying is a lie and, and they go out of their way to try to hurt you in it? How do you vindicate yourself? You know, I'm in a position, at least where people hear me all over the country, and sometimes people just are, are viciously mean. And they say stuff about you that's just horribly wrong. And, and I used to just, where do they live? I'll go to their house. We'll figure this out. As a young kid, now I bruise. I, I can't do that now. I have to send young people. No. <laughs> I have to learn to deal with it a little wiser, you know. Well, I'm telling you the whole deal. So David's advice is very wise. You know, it is good to let the Lord work that out. And I remember Pastor Chuck years ago at, at ministry school said to us, you know, when people start speaking about you evil, and they will, just ask yourself, are you a pastor who wants to lead the, and guide the flock, or are you a fireman who wants to run around and put out fires? If you're not a fireman, then let the fires burn. God will put them out. I always thought it was pretty good advice. I didn't always follow it, but it was good advice. So this is a psalm of false accusations and how to deal with them. Verse 1, O Lord, David says, my God, in you I put my trust. And again, notice the top is where he's singing about the words of Cush. O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from those who persecute me. Deliver me, lest they would tear me like a lion and rend me in pieces, and there is none to deliver me. David certainly had his share of enemies as God was raising him up. His Brothers didn't take too kindly to the Lord's choosing him. But leadership brings enemies. It's just the way it is. And David was a godly man, which made it even worse, because now your life is an offense, and then your leadership can as well. I want you to notice his approach to slander. He says, O Jehovah, those are those all capitals. We mentioned that last week. L-O-R-D, capitals, Jehovah. L with a small R-D, O-R-D, Adonai, uh, uh, the positional place, you know, you're the Lord over me, but this is Jehovah or Yahweh, the becoming one, the one who, the God who keeps his promises. O Jehovah or O Yahweh, my Elohim, plural for God, but it is used when God speaks of his power. I trust in you to save me and deliver me so I'm not destroyed like a prey of a lion, which is a great picturesque, you know, poetic outlook from a shepherd. He's seen what lions can do, you know. I don't want to look like that when they're done with me, my enemies. Lord, I trust you to keep me. I can't choose my own deliverance. Uh, it's either going to be you're going to care for me or I'm going to be destroyed. Then he says, oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, that which he was being accused of, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or if I've plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue me, overtake me. Let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. It is great to pray in distress with a clear conscience, don't you think? And that's all David's doing. He's just saying, if I've done the things they're accusing me of, they ought to wipe me out. But he hadn't. And by the way, if you compare chapter 6 and chapter 7, David's in a whole different place, isn't he? I mean, here's a man who is, is walking with God and trusting the Lord. But his life had been in such a position that it was Saul he had never said an unkind word about Saul. When the javelins were flying at his head, he was just dodging them and playing the second verse. You know, he had been a servant 
But I want you to notice something. Right living does not protect you from lying tongues. And envy, you know, can pursue goodness and blessing. And David even throws in one of those selahs at the end of verse 5. It's a rest note for, for a musical direction, but it literally means stop and think about this. You know, let this sink in before you go on. Um, though you are doing the right thing doesn't protect you from persecution. <clears throat> so David says in verse 6, Arise, Lord, in your anger <laughs> rather than mine. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment that you have commanded. And so the congregation of the people shall surround you, and for their sake, therefore, return on high. The Lord will judge the people. Judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. God, come, protect me and deal with them. Give me justice, God. I, I always ask for mercy for me. Ask for judgment for my enemies. I ask for mercy for me. I think it's biblical. I see it right here. <laughs> God help us. But God is more merciful than we are, and though he will take care of you, he doesn't and won't necessarily do it in your time, though David cries out for that. Lord, you see who's at fault here. In your anger, lift yourself up and rise up for me. In other words, wipe them out in my behalf. You know, take them out and then send them a card with my name on it. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end and establish the just. For the righteous God will test the heart and mind. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. He's a just God. And he is angry with the wicked every day. And if he does not turn back, then he just sharpens his sword. And he bow, bends his bow and he makes it ready. And he prepares himself for, the, for himself instruments of death that he makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So David cries for immediate rectification, but then comforts himself by saying, I know God is every day angry with wickedness. And he watches to see what people will do in their hearts and minds. And he's a just God, and he is angry, but he takes time to see what's going on. And time just means he's sharpening his tools. I love David. Yeah, well, if he hadn't wiped you out yet, it's because he's sharpening his tools. By the word, the way, the word angry here is the Hebrew word zoam, which means to foam at the mouth. It's that kind of anger that just kind of comes forth. And again, picturesque language. <laughs> I'm sure God's not foaming at the mouth. But if the wicked don't turn back, they will face God's wrath for sure. And the time that's in between is the mercy of God. David comforts himself by saying, he's just sharpening the sword. You that are blaspheming, you know, and, and going after David, falsely accusing him. And then he adds in verse 14, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. He conceives trouble. He brings forth falsehood or lies. He makes a pit. He digs it out. But he has fallen into the ditch which he has made, and his trouble will return on his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. See, even in the Bible, your head's called your crown right there. Hit you right in the crown. So I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and sing praises to the name of the Lord Most High, Jehovah El Yon, the possessor of all, who blesses his own out of his abundance. So David said, look, sin is kind of like giving birth, you know. He's now looking at the people falsely accusing him. It grows within until it comes without. Verse 14, it conceives. And sin is like a trap, you know. People dig a hole for you. They set traps for you. In the end, they fall into their own trap. Haman 
hung on the gallows. Who built the gallows? Haman did. Who did he hope would hang on it? Mordecai. Not so fast. In verse 16, he said, sin is like a boomerang. He throws it out there and trouble returns on his own head. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? With whatever judgment you judge, you'll be judged. Whatever measure you mete out, it'll be measured to you again. So how does David deal with false accusation? He asks God to deal with it quickly. He comforts himself knowing if God is patient, it's just because he's sharpening his tools. And he figures in the end, sin has its own reward. You'll fall into the, your own ditch. So just leave it be. Let it go. Ahab, you know, got killed and the, and the dogs came and licked the blood off of his dead body in the same field he had just stolen from a young or from a, a very poor man named Naboth who just happened to own it. it. He took his field from him, killed him, you know, and then he went out to look at it and he got killed and the dogs came and licked his blood. The Lord you can't mess with. He's the Lord of all. And David's final thought in verse 17 is, you know, that the Lord who owns everything will have the final word. So I can sing of the Lord's goodness in the midst of slander and frustration. It's a good psalm and great uh, counsel for those who are quick to want to defend themselves against those who would, you know, bad math. And unfortunately, sin has a way of making those kind of things happen all the time. In verse, or chapter 8, to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, or al Giddith, if you will, in Hebrew, it means wine press or harvest. This is a psalm of David. So, not, not a psalm of depression and sin that is hidden, not a psalm of false accusation, but a psalm to count your blessings at harvest time. A psalm of worship, where you're, where you're blessed by what God has given you. Verse 1. O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all of the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. The Lord our master, Jehovah Adonai. See how the, the big L, small O-R-D there? They, they're both on that first line. How excellent is your name in all the earth? Well, not yet, not yet. You know, one day every knee's gonna bow, but you'll find this term, the name, constantly used, both Old Testament and New, especially the Old. And, and if you haven't figured it out by now, it, it means more than what your name is. How excellent is your name, Bobby? You know, that doesn't work. But the name in, in the Old Testament was what you represent, what represented you, who you were. It was, it was the person you are. You know, David, when he was getting ready to fight Goliath, said, you come to me with a sword, you come to me with a spear, you bring out your, your javelin. I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. So his confidence was in the God who he knew, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. He went in the name of the Lord. It wasn't just the name. It wasn't some hocus-pocus magic. It was the name of the Lord in whom he trusted, the one he had come to know. So whenever you read the word the name, it, it, it speaks of the intimate knowledge that God has or that the people have of their God. How excellent your name in all of the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Now, Verse 2 says, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Verse, verse 2 is quoted by Jesus uh, during Passion Week in the temple. And some of the kids who were running around there with their parents began to sing Hosanna to Jesus, you know, that he was the Lord. And the Pharisees were mad, and they said, tell them kids to knock it off. And then Jesus pulled this one right out of his memory, you know, Psalm 
Um, 8, verse 2, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, God has perfected praise. No greater praise than that total, you know, honest worship from the heart. And, and he pulls this out and he quotes it to them. Um, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were angry. But, you know, Jesus declared that he was the son of God and that he was the savior that were coming and that they were his enemies. Notice, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, you've ordained strength. Perfected praise, as it reads in the New Testament, because of your enemies that they may silence the enemy and the avenger. You know, the, the Lord gave us victory. And so here David writes about that at harvest time as he's just thinking about the goodness of God. He writes in verse 3, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? David, as a shepherd boy, certainly... Had a lot of opportunities to hang around outside at night. And we don't get real good looks at the sky so often. We're around, you know, so much light. But sometimes it's beautiful, huh? And by comparison, if you've done any kind of reading, I just started working on the book of Hebrews for Wednesday night. And I spent time reading a couple of books from theoretical physicists about the size of the universe because God is the creator of all, you know. And it's amazing how big this place is, huh? I mean, it just, you start to read it, and even if they're half right, you don't get it. What? How is that possible? What? Who? I remember when Voyager 2 was sent out to Neptune, you know. Radio waves travel at 186,000 miles a second. It took four hours to get a signal back at 186,000 miles a second. Four hours. And that's just Neptune. That's not out there yet. That's just kind of nearby. Amazing. And David looked out at all of these stars, I'm sure, at night, and he went, gosh, Lord, look how big this place is. Look how small we are. How come you think about us? Why are you mindful? And the word mindful is just, isn't a word that means thinking about you. It's a word that means actively interested in your life. So participating, if you will, responding. Why do you pay attention to man? Who is man? The Hebrew word is enosh. It's the, it is only used when it speaks of man in his weakness, or mortal men, if you will. You know, Who is sinful man that you even care about him? The word son of man, by the way, without the article in Hebrew all the time, you're going to learn Hebrew yet, aren't you? Um, if it's son of man without the article, the son of man, just son of man, it always refers to Adam's descendants or us. We are the sons of Adam, and the word is Adama, which means dust or fallen man. If you read the the before the Son of Man, it is always a reference to the Savior to come, the Son of God, with a specific article. In the New Testament especially, it is always a reference to Jesus who came to save those without the article. <laughs> He's the article, we're not. <laughs> But we need his help because we're fallen men. Why, God, would you even be interested in fallen men who are weak and unable to stand, who are going back to the dust? Why do you even care about us? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So Jesus came to bring victory to us. Who are fallen. And then Jesus is given dominion. 
You've put all things under his feet, the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the pasture, the pass of the seas. Oh, Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. David is just blown away at God's goodness. He blesses us. He cares for us. He gives us great dominion. And man has been given dominion over God's creation, authority over them, though a little less than the angels. And Jesus, when he comes, Hebrews, you'll read of Jesus in chapter 2. I know that because I'm working on that. You made him a little lower than the angels, yet clothed him with glory and honor and set him over the work of your hands. But then it's applied with that article to Jesus. Here it applies to us, the dominion we have. In Hebrews it applies to Jesus, who became like us, came to us so that he could redeem us to himself. So this is quoted in Hebrews 2. It's also, like I said, quoted by Jesus there in the temple. We'll see that in a few weeks on Sunday morning. Psalm 9, to the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a psalm of David. And, and the words there in Hebrew are muthlaben, which means death of a champion or death of a victor. Most commentators believe that this psalm was written to, by David at the victory that he found over Goliath which would make sense by the title. And so you'll find him praising the Lord for his past deliverance and the victory that he got over this giant, Muthlaban, death of a champion or death of the son, and then praying that it might continue to be like that in the years to come. It seems that that certainly is a great possibility because when Goliath fell, not only did David get promoted to the sense that you know everyone began to think we should have him as king, but Israel took this great turn towards victory for quite a while. It, it turned the, the, the course of the nation, if you will, to begin to experience God's blessing. And so, you know, the praise for the victory over the enemies, which is re repeated, would certainly fit right in with what happened after Goliath was overthrown. They, they are great words of, you know, praise and worship and thanksgiving and asking God, beginning especially in verse 13, if God would not continue to do that uh, down the road um, for him and for the people. So verse 1 says, I will praise you, Lord, with my whole heart, and I will tell of all your marvelous works, and I will be glad and rejoice in you and sing praises to your name, O Most High. I think you might have sung this before. Great words of very willful determination that I think we would be wise to follow. Do you ever say to the Lord, I'm going to follow you with my whole heart? Not I'm sort of going to follow you, but I'm going to make a conscious decision to follow you with all that I have. And in so doing, I'm going to, part B, tell everyone of your marvelous works, as well as rejoicing in the Lord and singing praises to your name. I'm going to follow you with my whole heart, and part of that is going to be my witnessing to others. I'm going to make a conscious decision to witness to others. I don't know if you've ever kept a journal. I would challenge you, spend a month writing in your calendar every day when you witness to somebody for the Lord, and at the end of a month, see how you've spent your time. It's probably going to make you feel bad. Oh, no, no. Oh, no. Nothing on the page. You don't want to have a month go by, you know? I think you should get up every morning and go, Lord, I want to follow you with my whole heart. Who am I going to talk to today? <laughs> See if God wouldn't set before you an open door. More often than not, he will, because he's not run out of words or out of fields white for harvest. He's just running out of laborers so often. You know, the laborers are few. Pray for the laborers. But you might want to do that. Just keep a piece of paper in your Bible, and every day you get to share with somebody, you know, write it down. 
and see how often you've been in that position to really communicate your faith to someone else. I think if you would, not only will you in the process find out how good God is, but I think you'll become very thankful as to what he will do with your life if you're just available. So if this is the occasion, you know, there goes Goliath. David is just going, oh, I'm, you're the Lord, man. I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to tell everyone about who you are. Verse 3 says, when my enemies turn back and they fall and perish at your presence, you've maintained my right, my cause, You've sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Oh, enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. So the victory of, of the kingdom of Israel under David's leadership was attributed by David to the Lord's care. The reason the enemy is on the run, Lord, is because you're with us. I think that is good for us to remember because we're in a battle too and Satan is our enemy and he's always plotting to destroy us and we're not destroyed because the Lord is with us. There's a great verse, Isaiah 54, right at the end. What is it, verse 17? That says, no weapon formed against us will, will, will prosper and every tongue that rises up against us in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the children of God or the servants of the Lord and their righteousness comes from me, saith the Lord. That's what we can count on. You know, David went, I'm, I'm so blessed the Lord's taking care of us. We're, we're protected. So are we, aren't we? Just think what the devil would do to you if God gave him the permission. He won't. But David and Saul are a good picture of God's provisions as we head for the place God has established. Saul was his enemy, but David was blessed. And then David says in verse 7, the Lord will endure forever. He's prepared his throne for judgment. He'll judge the world in righteousness, administering judgment for the people in uprightness. And yet the Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed and a refuge in time of trouble. Those who know your name will put your trust. There's that word, the name again. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, you who dwell in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people, second time. And when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. So David just is so thankful that God is going to balance the scales and bring justice to bear and remember the humble. And the Lord is going to come through. We can hide with him. What a great lesson to learn. How, how much we need to learn these verses. Verse 13 have mercy upon me, Lord, and consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell all, third time, your praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion, and rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is now caught. Sounds like a repetitive thought, isn't it? And the Lord is known by the judgment he executes, and the wicked is snared in the work of his own hands, and then he adds this word hegion, or meditate on this. And then he throws in there a salah to really stop here. That's a double stop sign right there. Meditate on this and then stop and think about it. Think on this, know this. What happens? God is for his own people and the sinful are going to be destroyed. Goliath and the, and the Philistines were just wiped out. They killed themselves. They killed each other. David couldn't believe it. The wicked shall be turned to hell, he writes. 
and so will the nations that forget God for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. So arise, Lord, don't let man prevail, and let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. And David's prayer is that somehow the way God will deal with people will be such a way that they'll realize it's God and they'll submit to him. And notice he throws another one of them salahs in there. This is pretty heavy. Think about this. This is pretty heavy. Think about this. David was thinking about a lot of stuff. <laughs> and he kept writing it. And so we come to the last psalm of tonight, Psalm 10, which is uh, a psalm that literally says in 18 verses, the wicked will thrive, but only for a little while. And, and Boyce called this psalm a study in practical atheism. And he quoted a study by Gallup a few years ago about America and its religion, and he called the, 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 the sermon, Is America's Faith Real? And then he came out with the statistics from the latest Gallup survey. 81% of Americans claim to be religion, a religious, which puts a second only to the Italians, who are at 83%. Way to go, America. 71% of our nation believed in life after death. 84% believed in heaven. Only 67% believed in hell. Convenient. Nearly everybody they interviewed had a Bible in their house, and 50% of the people said they went to church somewhere on Sundays. Less than 20% said they walked with God. And yet, interestingly enough, less than 10% said that their relationship with God or their religion had made any impact on their lives. So what you have is a bunch of people going to church who have religion and a belief system about life after death and God and the Bible, and yet it means nothing to them. And that's our country. We, we find this practical kind of atheism, you know, where people have grown up in religious backgrounds, and they say they want that for their family, but, but as the Gallipol asked about, you know, religious upbringing, I think it was health, and then education, and then success, and then marriage, and then prominence, and then religion. I think it hit sixth or seventh. Practical atheism is kind of the philosophy of the wicked. They have a religion, but they don't have a heart for God. They have a religion, but it doesn't move them. They have a belief system, but it doesn't mean anything to them. They have a form of godliness, but there's no power. And so this psalm tends to speak to that very issue practical atheism, and it's a plea for God's judgment. And it is stuck in the middle of a bunch of psalms of David, so most people presume David wrote it. Um, whether he did or not hardly matters, but let's look at the psalm beginning in verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, Lord, and why do you hide in times of trouble when the wicked in his pride persecute the poor? Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Are you seeing this recurring theme about reaping what you sow? For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy while renouncing the Lord. And the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God, and God is in none of his thoughts. The wicked are arrogant. They don't seek God. There's no room for him in their thoughts. That's a pretty good apt description of most people. God is in none of their thoughts. Don't you think? Well, unless someone gets sick, then, oh, God, we get calls sometimes at the church. People want prayer. And then when you begin to talk to them, you realize this might be the first church they've ever called. 
You know, where do you go to church? I don't. You know, what do you believe God is doing? What do you know about God? I don't know. I, we just need prayer, you know. And then they don't want, then they don't want to ask, <laughs> could you just get a word in there? You know him. Just deal with it, you know, for me. The wicked is as God in none of their thoughts. David goes on to describe these folks, and he says, their ways prosper, and yet your judgments are far above and out of his sight. As for all of his enemies, he just sneers at them. He says in his heart, I won't be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression, while under his tongue there is trouble and sin or iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the village, and in the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion would in his den to catch the poor. And he catches them when he draws them into his net and he crouches and lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. And then he says in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. So David sees these wicked people as prospering and secure, vile mouth, violent lives. And to them, God's judgment is out of sight. Not only out of mind, out of sight. His heart sees only good ahead. He doesn't have any balanced outlook on life. His mouth is very arrogant. He goes after the poor and after the weak, which, by the way, are on God's protective species list. The fatherless, the widows, the children. Be careful. And his success at being a pariah has him concluding in verse 11 that God doesn't care and God doesn't see. I had a guy once, I said to him, man, you keep living like that. You're going you're gonna to run into the worst deal with God one day. And he said this, and killed me yet. I said, no, but it's early. <laughs> You'll get it eventually, pal. You know, don't live like that. Be careful. But notice the conclusion in verse 11. Most people that when they succeed at, at, at gain for themselves, make the wrong conclusion about God. He's forgotten. He doesn't look. He won't see. He's not around. So David, or whoever the psalmist prays, Lord, arise. And God, lift up your hands. Don't forget the humble. Why can the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not be required to give an account? You have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. To repay it with your hand, the helpless commit themselves to you. You're the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man and seek out his wickedness until you find none. See, I like David's expression to the Lord of all of his frustration. You find it a lot. People sometimes you know, try to cover that up and go, well, that's not really your prayer. David's in the flesh. I think David's just being David. Don't you ever pray like that, Lord? You know what I'd like to see happen? <laughs> now, you never can get that done, but you can tell the Lord how you feel. He understands. And then he'll temper it and fix it for you. He'll clean it up and edit it, you know? But there's no sense trying to fool God and pretend you're not upset. He knows anyway. And David does a lot in the Psalms, especially, my goodness. Lord, couldn't you just break his arm and find the wicked people till there were none of them? And don't let the poor people cry out too long because, you know, they trust you. Don't let them just wait too long. Go after them, Lord. <laughs> I think it's a mistake for any of you to ever think that if you're getting away with sin that God doesn't care. Or that somehow God is blind to it, or he approves it, or maybe he's just unable to do something about it. God does know. 
And in the end, God will always make things right. There's a good verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, that says this. Because a sentence is not, oh, because a sentence against an evil work is not carried out speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. By this, Solomon means, God waits, so by the time you're judged, you're without excuse. You've had the opportunity to repent. You've had time to think things through. You've got to see what the fruit of sin is all about. And as God patiently waits and patiently deals with you, if it it goes the the length of the deal, and you stand before God one day, and you say, Lord, well, you didn't do anything about it. The Lord said, but you did. I gave you plenty of chances to return and repent. God isn't blind to sin. God is very patient, though. And his dealings are, though, though they are sometimes untenable to us. We don't understand how the Lord can wait so long. How can the wicked get away with it and the poor suffer? How come, Lord? Why? For one minute, never ever come to the conclusion God's not going to do something. Oh, he'll do plenty. But he'll do it in his time. And the psalmist writes at the end what we should all know. The Lord is coming. The Lord can be trusted. His timing is good and it is right. And so he writes in verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever and the nation's have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their hearts. You will cause your ear to hear and do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress him no more. Now, a couple of things, very important. Remember, as you wait for the Lord to deliver, he writes in the past tense, you have heard, and then in the future tense, you will prepare. So here's the deal. God will come to your rescue, that's for sure. You can write it in the past tense. It's a done deal. But in the time of of waiting, why is the purposes? Well, here's one of them, that God can prepare your heart and cause your ear to hear. The benefit of God's waiting in many ways, if you're the oppressed, is so that you might learn to hear God's voice, that your heart can be turned to the Lord, that you can find yourself in a position where you trust the Lord implicitly, though nothing seems to be done for you. Is deliverance coming? Yep, the psalmist wrote it past tense. But in the future sense, or in the time of waiting, it is you who are being formed into the image of God. You say to people, how come the Lord doesn't help them out? I don't know, maybe he's blessing them in developing their heart. You know, what you really have is is your relationship with God. If if you're forced into that through your circumstance, sometimes you're going to say, thank you, Lord, eventually, you know. Thank you, Lord, I had to go through all that. I, I can't begin to tell you how many folks, when they get to be older, say, you know, looking back, I'm so glad I went through that. But going through it, it just stunk. I hated it. But now you're glad you went through it. Why? Because I've learned to walk with God. I've learned to trust the Lord. And and verse um, um, 17 is awesome, you know. He's going to deliver you, but he's going to prepare your heart and cause your ear to hear and do justice. And eventually that man of the earth (laughs) is not going to be in your case anymore. God will deliver you but you're going to have to wait in the meantime and grow spiritually while you wait. God doesn't delay for no good reason. There's a good reason. Next week, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Lots of Psalms of David. I hope that you'll spend some time with him this week before you show up next Sunday night. And then Josh will be here. Father, thank you tonight for the psalms that you have set before us, and I pray that in the weeks to come as we kind of plot along through them and take them one at a time and take them in order and pray for your wisdom that each week one of them or two will really stick with us. 
that we'll really learn and, and, and take it to heart what you have said. We see David punished for his sin. His flesh can't handle it. His emotions are falling apart. But repentance brought great healing to his life. I pray that we wouldn't uh, hide sin in our hearts. We wouldn't try to pretend we we're something we're not. We would just be, Lord, those men and women, the weak that would want to serve God. And may we learn from David, there's no, there's no sense or benefit in trying to hide our sin when you can only forgive us when we return to you. May you remind us from Psalm 7, Father, that being falsely accused is not pleasant, but Lord, you have a way of making things right, that you will defend us, that sin, much like giving birth, brings its own pitfalls, and it'll return often on the head of those who've been living there, much like Haman found, much like Ahab found, much like men still find. May we trust you, Lord, to clear our name. May we trust you. May you arise and bring judgment. You're our God. May we meditate upon how you can defend us. May we be reminded from David's celebration of the harvest time that he had so much and felt so small in a big earth. And <laughs> How come God cared for sinful, wicked, fallen man and then gave to him this authority over his creation that you would come and redeem us? What a blessing, God, that you would take interest in us. May we learn from the, the psalm of the tune of the death of the champion that, Father, as we trust in you and we think about you and we look to you and we depend upon you, that we're going to find victory. Even as David wrote their meditation in Salah on the same verse, stop and really consider that it is the work of God in our behalf. And may we learn from chapter 10, Father, that the wicked only get away with it for a while. And while we're on the suffering side of wickedness, if you delay, it's for our benefit. Not that the judgment isn't coming, but we have to grow first. And you bless us with that opportunity to trust you. And one day, the man of the earth will not be bothering us anymore. No more oppression. You're going to deliver us. So, Father, may these psalms find a, a, a root in our hearts, a place to grow. May you bury them deep within so we don't sin against you. If tonight you need prayer, maybe you need to know the Lord more than you do, better than you do. Maybe you haven't come to Jesus to give him your life. But may the Lord just help you to walk with him this week. And may his word fill your heart, we pray. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash morningstarcc. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash morningstarcc.